Amen. Thank you, David. Well, good evening. Have you had a good Mother's Day, whatever that means for you? Did anybody wake up this morning and forget that they hadn't sent their mum a nice card or anything? No, you all good children. Well done. So it may be Mothering Sunday today, but actually we're going to talk this evening about fathers. And uh, more specifically, about God the Father. And most specifically of all, whether the love of God, the love of the Father for you, is what is shaping the way you think, whether it's shaping the way you live, whether it's shaping the way, uh, whether it's shaping the person that you're becoming. I've quoted this in church before, A.W. Tozer, great author. If you ever want to read some sort of good old-fashioned short books written by a really passionate Christian, A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. What comes into your mind, the first thing you think about God when you think about him, says an awful lot about you. It's the most important thing about you. And the Bible story that we're going to look at in just a moment, I think, uh, nails this down to a T. It absolutely backs that statement up. But before we open the Bible, let's have just a little kind of moment of health check, something like that. I want to ask you a couple of questions. How is your relationship with God the Father? Where would you say you're at in your relationship with God the Father? How are you doing in letting God be a father to you? How are you doing in that? And how are you doing in living and exploring and discovering and experiencing the breadth and the depth and the height and the width of his love for you? Ephesians 3 talks about. How are you doing in living as a son or a daughter of the living God. Jesus said something really powerful in John chapter 14, verse 6. It's a verse that we'll all know. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's a, it's a statement of his that is often used in backing up, you know, as kind of evidence for the fact that the only way that we can have a relationship with the living God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But there's something else that often gets missed in that statement, and it's this. Jesus said, I'm the way, which means he's the pathway to something. And he said, I'm the way to the Father. So he's the pathway, and the Father is the destination, And many of us, many, many Christians, we can get stuck on the pathway with our relationship with Jesus and never make it to the destination, which is a relationship with God the Father as our Father. He's the way, the truth and the life, the way to the Father. So if you've got a Bible, I don't think we're going to read the passage today. I don't actually think, we haven't managed it. Um, There was a bit of a hitch with the uh, old uh, keynote thing. So if you've got a Bible, uh, if you've got a paper Bible, you might want to dig it out, blow off the dust. If you've got a phone and you have a Bible on your phone, you can load up the techie thing. And uh, we're going to read the story of the prodigal son. One of my favourite stories, and I think a favourite story for so many. It's called the uh, story of the prodigal son. I'm sure it would be much better called the story of the prodigal or the amazing father, because actually the father is at the centre of this story. It's all about the father. But um, they, the Bible calls it the story of the prodigal son. So turn, if you've got a Bible, to Luke chapter 15, 
and uh, we're going we're gonna to read the story, which is between uh, verses 11 and 32, but just to give it a bit of context, have a look at verses 1 and 2. It's the beginning of a chapter on lost things. We have the lost coin, we have the lost sheep, but we're looking at the lost uh, son. But Jesus begins, or the text, the commentary begins, about uh, highlighting the fact that there are tax collectors and sinners, and they're all gathering around to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So just before we read the story, important to note that Jesus is surrounded by a bunch of people who thought they were good, the Pharisees. The Pharisees represented good people. They worked really hard at trying to please God. They thought they knew God. They thought they lived for God. They thought they spoke for God. They thought they knew all about God. And they were kind of effectively the good people. The the crowd has got a load of Pharisees in it, and the rest of the crowd is made up by sinners, effectively the bad people of the day. The people who kind of lived their own way, they weren't interested in God, they were pretty rebellious, Uh, they they were bad and everybody told told them that they were bad, they weren't interested in God, prostitutes, drug dealers, tax collectors who got rich at other people's expense, you name it, they were all lumped into the term sinners. So Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people that are either good people or bad people, And he then tells this story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything... There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Eventually, he came to his senses, and he said, How many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll get out, I'll set out, I'll go back to my dad, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, While he was there, in the distance, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. For this son of mine, uh, sorry, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. And they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. So he called one of the servants And he asked him, what's going on? Your brother's come back, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became really angry and he refused to go in. 
So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who's squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Now this story will be familiar to you. I don't know about you, I think Jesus is an absolutely genius storyteller. And this one doesn't disappoint, which is why, as I said, it's probably one of the most famous stories, if not the most famous story, that Jesus ever told. And one of the reasons that this story is so genius is because he's communicating about humans, about us, about mankind and our relationship with God, and he's communicating about the Father using shock tactics. Don't know if you've spotted that but he's actually using shock tactics in this story. Perhaps one of the most shocking assumptions that is more hidden in this story, uh, I think can often get overlooked, and we'll come back to that in a bit. If you remember, uh, Jesus was asked at some point, another point when he was telling the parable of the sower, uh, some of his friends said to him, Jesus, why do you talk to people in stories all the time? Why Why do you talk in parables? Why do you talk in stories that people can't understand? And Jesus effectively replies to the disciples. He says to his friends, well, I talk in stories because I can hide stuff in stories. And if I hide stuff in stories, then only the people that are really hungry to find out what I'm really talking about, who are really keen to know about God and how the kingdom works, they're the people that will actually be able to find out and discover what I'm really talking about. So he actually says himself that he talks in stories a lot of the time to hide stuff, not from us, but for us to go and search out if we're really interested in getting to know him well and knowing how the kingdom works. And I think there's, you know, there's some hidden stuff in this story too. But this stuff is full of, of interesting and shocking ingredients that would have shocked the listeners in all kinds of ways all the way throughout the story. So I just want to highlight some of those before we look at the more hidden shock. So keep your Bible open. Verse 1 and 2. It's pretty shocking. If you're standing in front of a group of people and you know who they are and they know that you're looking at them and you know that some of them are good people, self-defined good people, and you look at other bad people and you choose to tell a story about the people in front of you and you put them into the story and you don't make any of them come out from the story in a particularly good way, that is rather shocking, isn't it? So if Jesus was in here and he told a story about us and he kind of picked this side of the room and he picked this side of the room and actually nobody in the room comes out looking particularly good from the story, well, that's fairly shocking, isn't it? Because we expect him, you know, to kind of make us all, you know, feel good about ourselves. Or maybe we don't, I don't know. But he tells a story about the people in front of him and he doesn't uh, make them look terribly good. The good people are the ones, he, he looks at them and he thinks the good people, right, You are the older son in the story. You're the good boy. You're the one who works out in the field and looks after his dad or works in his father's house. And he looks at the bad people, the people that culture is calling bad, the sinners, as the text says, and he says, right, I'm going to call you the younger son in the story. So the younger son are the people who are sitting, listening on this side of, you know, wherever they're sitting. And the older son in the story are the the Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees who are sitting on the other side. 
The youngest son, the bad boy, gets exposed first in this story. His request to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate, was an utterly shocking thing for everybody in that crowd to have heard. Because in those days, you got an inheritance from your dad if he was rich, but you got it when your dad died. So to ask his dad in that moment for his share of the inheritance was to basically say to his dad, I've had enough of you, I wish you were dead. Give me now what I would inherit when you died. He's basically saying to his dad, this younger boy in the story, do you know what? I've had enough of living under your, under your roof. I've had enough of living by your standards. I've had enough of trying to do life your, your way and allowing you to influence me. I'm off, but give me all the stuff that I would get from you if you died. And in these days, you know, in the, in the context that Jesus is telling this story, people took the command to honour your parents really, really seriously. So this was the most incredible insult This was the most devastating thing to say, the most outrageous thing to say to your dad. And Jesus knew that he was shocking the crowd by naming that request. But even more than this, he was saying to the bad guys in the crowd, he was effectively saying to them, this is how you treat God. Remember, you bad guys, you're the bad son in the story. And this is effectively how you treat God. By not wanting to know him, by not wanting to follow his ways, by not wanting to allow him to influence your life, by not wanting to know him, you've just taken the blessings that he's given you, you've taken the resources that you've given, he's given you, you've taken the goodness that he's poured into your life and you've just gone off with it, lived your own lives, your own selfish lives, done with it what you want, with no uh, reflection on him. You've taken the good stuff of the, of the Father and you've effectively treated God and wished God you know, dead. You've wanted nothing to do with him. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? To hear Jesus telling you as you're sitting in the crowd that that's effectively how you've treated God. The next shocker in the story is that the father actually gives him what he's asking for. So the the son has asked for his inheritance and the father gives it to him. I mean, why would he do that? He didn't have to. Why didn't he just turn around and say, no, you're not having it. Don't be so rude. Leave my house, but leave it with no inheritance. He actually gives the son what the son is asking for. The culture of the day would have demanded that the son, who had been so rude to his parents, to his father in front of the whole community, the culture would have demanded that the son got beaten. But God the father in this story gives the son the inheritance, gives him his freedom, and allows him to go off and do whatever he does with it. Shocker number four. Look at your story. The bad son, he squanders everything in wild living. It's not like he goes off and invests it and builds a business empire and uses some of the profits to, to you know, bless people in the far land. Nope. Wastes his money on himself, lives utterly selfishly for his own gratification, and at the end of the day, he has nothing left. That would have been utterly shocking to the crowd too. He took his father's inheritance, which became his, and then he squandered the whole lot. And at the end of the day, he had nothing to show for it. Michael Jackson, he was apparently worth, uh, apparently had $400 million worth of debt in his name when he died 10 years ago. That is a lot of debt. 
you know, that's more than most of us will spend <laughs> in a lifetime. He had $400 million worth of debt, and he was one of the highest paid musicians that has ever walked the face of this planet. Now, I don't know how he managed that, but that is squandering an awful lot of money. But at least he earned his money. The guy in this story, he hadn't even done anything. It was one huge gift, and he squandered the lot of it. Jesus isn't making the bad people in the crowd feel much better. He's shocking them by, by suggesting that, that they've taken God's blessings, they've taken his resources, they've wanted nothing to do with him. That's, that's, how, you know, that's how it is if we live without regard to God and squandered it just by doing life with his resources the way we want to. And the shock doesn't end there. He ends up eating pig food, which if you're a Jew... And, you know, he was telling it in Jewish company, is like the lowest of the low. Do any of you have those little green food bins? Do you use them? Yeah? Do you put them out on a sort of Tuesday? We do Tuesday night. Don't know what night of the week you do. Well, I reckon this is about as close as we can get to imagining what this was like for a Jew to eat pig food, is to imagine you're quite hungry on a Tuesday night when all the little green bins are lined up, lined up down the pavement. And you think, well, I've got to go and, you know, find my supper in one of those green bins. Don't really fancy it, do you? <laughs> I reckon it was a bit like that, being resorting to eating pig food. At the end of this, at this point in the story, though, everybody's probably going, well, he deserved it. That's exactly what he deserved. And they're probably expecting the story to end. But no, Jesus carries on. He hasn't finished yet. He's got more to say. And the shockometer, as it were, for those that were listening, goes up a level. Because this youngest son, who's eating out of the green bins, decides, oh, I think I'll go home. Actually, I've just remembered that my father's so wealthy, he has loads of servants, and they all get a meal, you know, three times a day. I need some food. I'll go home, and I'll ask my dad to become one of his servants. There's no indication in this story that the son feels really bad about what he's done to his dad. There's no indication that the son has got any regret about what he's done with his money. There's no indication that he's got any regret at all, apart from the fact that he's got nothing to eat. And so he's got a plan to come back to his father and get a job so he can have a bit more food. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? Don't know if any of you have seen, been following the media in the last sort of two months. This, uh, there's a girl, Shamima Begum. Have you read about her, the ISIS bride, the, the girl who, who um, went off to Syria and married an ISIS uh, fighter? And uh, she wanted to come back to the UK, I think it was about a couple of months ago, uh, to have a baby because two previous babies had died out there. And uh, the request to come back to the UK because she knew that her baby would be better off if it was born over here than over there and there'd be all the benefits and everything else has not understood. Uh, has not surprisingly, or did not surprisingly, stir up a huge debate about whether she should be allowed back into this country. You know, it caused a lot of debate and outrage and opinions and everything else. Well, that probably gives us a bit of a clue as to what the community would be beginning to think. You know, as the son walked back, thinking he could now use his father to, to feed himself after everything he'd done, the community would have been absolutely livid in turmoil, outraged that he might think he could come back to this community that he has assaulted and insulted in such an incredible way. And then there's the shock about what the father does when this boy approaches home. And everything the father does is really, really shocking. 
First of all, he's watching and he sees his son in the distance, which tells you he didn't give up on his son at any point in time. And he should have done. You know, he should have disowned him. The culture would have encouraged him to disown him and never see him again because the, the son had brought such shame on, on the community, let alone the family, because of the way he treated the father. But oh no, the father is sitting at his window watching. Now, how did he know that day that the son was going to come home? Well, the only way he knew was because he'd been sitting at the window watching every day. Every day he'd been watching for his son to come back. A number of years ago, our eldest son, um, on Christmas Day, at the age of 11, decided to run away. And uh, it wasn't a particularly happy Christmas Day. We uh, had to delay Christmas lunch till Christmas evening because uh, we ended up having the police involved to come and find him. It was absolutely traumatic. And needless to say, I was beside myself with... Um, concern. My heart was breaking. After he didn't reappear in five minutes, I had all the stuff going through my head that, you know, I could be on crime watch or I was going to be, you know, in the media as one of those parents, you know, who'd lost their child or perhaps he'd been kidnapped. It was absolutely heart-wrenching. I couldn't stand still. I sort of marched around. We lived uh, on a college campus. Uh, Tim used to teach at Cheltenham College. We lived on, on part of the school campus. It was dark. It was freezing. Like I said, we had the police out. We had our in-laws. It was an absolute nightmare. For 40 minutes, we couldn't find him. And as every minute went by, it became more and more traumatizing. You know, my, my, my heart was breaking. My heart was absolutely breaking. And I haven't experienced anything as traumatic as that. That was my son missing for 40 minutes. You know, eventually he was found in an amazing way. I, won't, I haven't got time to tell you about the details, but that was my son missing for 40 minutes. This boy had gone for a long time. And the father chose not to shut down his heart and just decide, right, that's it, no more relationship because it's too painful. Every day he allowed himself to feel the pain of his son being absent and would today be the day that they, that they found him. Was he still alive? Would today be the day? Would today be the day that he came home? And he sees him on the day that he comes home because he's not given up. That was shocking to the community that he was looking for his son to come home. And then he runs. He gets up and runs towards his son as he sees him. Nobody ran in the Middle East. No man ever ran in the Middle East because you had to hoik up your tunic and everybody would see your bare legs in order to be able to run. And that was so undignifying. We can't imagine it. But that was so undignifying. No man ever ran. And yet he charges to greet his son, to get to him before all the rocks and stones that all the villagers in the community would have hurled at him because there was no way they were having this chap back in their community to model to other people, you know, that if you, if you, if you dishonour your parents, you get a second chance. And then what does the father do? He puts his arms around him. That was so shocking. He should have had the boy on his knees, begging for mercy, giving an explanation for what he'd done. He should have made him pay, at least. And yet the father's got his arms around the boy, kissing him, kissing his son in front of the entire community that was watching because he was so glad to have him back. And do you know he didn't, I don't know if you noticed in the story, read it again, he didn't even let the boy get his little plan out. The boy didn't even have the chance to say, make me like one of your hired hands. The father interrupted him. I don't care what you've got to say. I'm just so glad 
you're back home. Utterly shocking. And then, here's another shock. He throws a party. He doesn't, you know, he could have recouped his inheritance by saying, son, you can work for me, you know, 10 years, and you'll have paid me back, and then we'll have a party. But oh no, he throws a party that night. And this kind of feels and looks to everyone in the community and to the crowd that are listening, that is like the ultimate in bad parenting. It's like you're rewarding him for the way he's lived. The good guys in the crowd aren't off the hook yet. Jesus is like, right, I'm turning my attention to you lot. If you think this is all about them and you've, you're, you're okay because you think you know God and you've, you know, living to please him and, and you think you know his love, let me just remind you about you lot. And if they aren't shocked to the core about the picture of this God that they don't really know as well as they think they do, that Jesus is painting, he shocks them by comparing and contrasting their reaction to the Father's. And we see this, Jesus tells them the son is livid. The father's delighted, the son is livid. What a contrast. What does that tell us about the heart of the older son that God exposes, that Jesus exposes in this story? He's leaving them to be exposed by what they're really feeling about the way God treats those who don't deserve to be treated in the way that... uh, He treats the younger son in this story. And the ultimate shocking ending here is that we don't know whether the elder son actually ends up coming in to join the party. Jesus doesn't tell us. That's a little bit uncomfortable. We don't know where those elder brothers end up. But there's another hidden shock in this story, which for me, other than how much I don't get God, is rather shocking in its own right. And that is this, that both of these boys grew up in the father's house. They both grew up in the house of this amazing, affectionate, passionate, merciful, compassionate father. And neither of them really knew him. Neither of them really got his love. Neither of them knew how to relate to him. How could they miss it? How could they grow up in the father's house, this incredible father's house, and miss the nature of his love, which they did? And it had tragic consequences for both of them in different ways. For me, that's the hidden shock of this story. Because I know the father, and, and, and we know the father, but what this story is saying is that we can miss the father's love. We can go through life on the pathway and never get to the destination without walking in the freedom of knowing and experiencing and living in the warm, affectionate, passionate, fierce love of the Father. Both of the boys grew up with faulty beliefs about God, about how they were to relate to their loving Father. And do you know what? So do we. We all have grown up with faulty beliefs about what God is really like and how we relate to him, partly because we've had our own experiences of our own earthly fathers and they haven't portrayed to us what God is really like. 
And so we take our earthly experiences of our earthly fathers and think, oh, well, God must be like this. And there's a whole spectrum of those experiences, but none of our earthly fathers have represented God to us perfectly. So if my dad didn't pay much attention to me, my assumption will be, well, God doesn't pay much. God isn't that interested in me. If my dad was always really proud about my achievements, my assumption will be I've got to achieve in order to get my dad's attention and his approval. And God must be impressed by achievement. But that isn't the case for these boys. They had a perfect father and they still didn't understand what God was really like. They both ended up believing that they had to perform for God's love and affection and approval. That they had to do good in order to get good from their father. I've messed up. What did the younger son say? I've messed up. As he came home, I've messed up. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Therefore, my, my relationship with you as a son is over. So what he's really saying is, I'm only able to be your son and be worthy of call, being called your son if I live properly, if I live well, if I do right, if I do good. He thought that his sonship was over, that it was conditional, and therefore it was over because he'd messed everything up. The older son, it's more obvious. He's livid, he's resentful because he's performed well, he's worked hard, he's tried really hard to be a good boy, help his father out, father out and yet there's no apparent reward for it. It clearly doesn't appear to make much difference to the father. The father says, do you know what, you could have had a party anyway, anytime. He just didn't ask. But we can end up feeling like these boys, that our sins, that the stuff we get wrong, that the choices we make disqualify us from being called, from being loved, from knowing and experiencing the fullness of the Father's love for us. But do you know what? It's actually a form of arrogance to think that, that somehow we can change the way God thinks about us by the way we behave, by the choices we make, by the way we live. To think that we can adjust the thermostat on the intensity of God's love by what we do is really bigging us up, you know. If we think that the, the fire that powers the universe, the love that burns in God's heart for us can change depending on what little old me does or doesn't do, depending on what you do or don't do. God's affection for you and for me doesn't depend on anything. It's not conditional, ever. You know, you've heard it said, there's nothing, more that you, there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. And, the, and God, the Father, wasn't even going to let the boy come up with his plan of, you know, I'm sorry, please let me, whatever, because he wasn't going to let his affection and his response to his son depend on what the son said to him. These sons had a well-adjusted, loving father, but they missed what the father was like. And if we are going to know and experience and get hold of and live in and grow in the love, the warmth, the compassionate, the affectionate love that the Father has for me and for you. The kind of stuff that, that Jesus is illustrating here. Well, what does it mean for us? How do we do that? I think it means we have to make learning to live loved 
an absolute priority in our lives. We have to learn to live in the love of God. We have to learn to let God love us. And we have to learn it because it doesn't come naturally. Because like the boys in the story, our receptors were broken in Eden. You know, we lost our ability to receive the love of God and experience it in Eden. And it's returned to us when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. But we then have to go on this journey of learning about the Father's love, learning to experience it, learning to let him love us, and learning to live in that love. And it doesn't come naturally. And we're all at different stages on that journey, even in here this evening. But friends, we are on a journey, and this journey doesn't end. You don't graduate to being an expert. You don't graduate to being a manager or a leader or anything else in this kingdom. We're children of God. And the highest thing that we can do is to learn to become experts at living in the love of God. Because the more we receive it, the more we experience it, the more we can give it away. Do you know, a number of years ago, a good number of years ago now, there was a conference in this church and a chap called Brian Dirksen, who works for the Vineyard in Canada, came to speak uh, in this church on the love of the Father. It was a number of years ago. And he spoke, he spoke a lot uh, about this parable uh, on one of the particular days. And this ache within me began to rise. And this cry in my, in my spirit began to grow. Because everything I heard about what he said about the Father's love, I knew in my head was true. But I didn't feel it. I didn't experience it. I didn't know it in my life. And I so desperately wanted to know it. I wanted it to become real for me rather than a kind of an abstract theory that I heard about. I went home, I had jaw aches, I'd been gritting my teeth because I didn't have any waterproof mascara on that day and, you know, been doing a lot of crying. But I began to cry out to God, God, show me your love as a father. What is it like for you to father me? What is it like to really be a daughter of yours? Teach me to live in your love. And God began to take me on a journey. And that powerful longing in my heart was a result of the Holy Spirit being there. But I allowed it to, to rise up and I began to really pray about it and to keep praying that he would teach me to let him love me. And uh, that was you know, a journey that's had different seasons in it. But at that particular stage of my journey, I was, I was praying very deliberate and intentional prayers to get to know God as Father. And on one occasion, it kind of a thought crossed my mind, you know, my earthly father has never brought, bought me a present in my life. But if you're a good father and you're different to my earthly father, then maybe you want to buy me gifts, even though I've never been bought a gift by my father. And so one year, it came to my birthday that year, and I, I prayed, I got on my knees and I said to the Lord, as my father, I would love you to give me a birthday present. Really random prayer to pray, I know. But this is, this is a real relationship we're talking about. It's not an abstract theory. And it came to my birthday. And that evening, a friend of mine who didn't actually know it was my birthday, she wasn't you know, she wasn't a really close friend, and we didn't have Facebook in those days that popped up and told you that, you know, it's so-and-so's birthday today. She knocked on my door. She walked into the kitchen, and she had this package wrapped up in some brown paper. And she said, I was in a shop um, a couple of days ago, and I was buying this, this thing for myself. And as I was at the till about to pay, I felt the Lord say to me, I want you to give that to Hills. So she said, I paid for it, and I've wrapped it up, and here it is. And she didn't know it was my birthday. So I opened the gift 
And inside it was a picture. I don't know if we've got it up on the screen. It will be familiar to some of you. And it's actually the picture of the prodigal father embracing his son. I have that up in one of the rooms in my house. I'm sure it didn't cost a huge amount as a print, but to me, it's hugely precious because it was a personal gift from my heavenly father. And God wants to father us. He wants to be a father to us. He doesn't want us to just know in theory about what the Bible says. He wants us to experience his love. And that is a journey I want to encourage us again this evening to commit to going on. We can get so distracted by all the other good things in our Christian lives about how we serve him and, you know, adventures over here and over there and everything. And that's all good and true. But it's so easy to end up in the field and away from the Father's house. And the Father is longing to embrace us day in, day out, so that we live from a place of knowing and experiencing his love. Jesus knew the love of the Father. It is his spirit that comes to live within us when we begin a relationship with him and put our trust in his death and resurrection. And in Romans 8, we're told that that spirit cries out, Abba, Father. It's the spirit within us that helps us to know and experience the love of God. It's the spirit within us that causes that cry and that longing that you have to know the love of God, to rise up. It's the Holy Spirit within you. It's a journey that we do with the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God that teaches us about God. It's a journey that we do with the community of God. Get around and hang out with the people that can model the love, the unconditional of love, of unconditional love of God to you. Friends, let's not fall into the trap of being like these boys that missed what it's like to know the incredible, affectionate, warm, life-giving, life-changing love of the Father. It's on offer for all of us, every moment of every day. But we have to commit to that journey of learning to live in it. Not just learn about it, but learning to live in it. So why don't we stand? I wonder if we might actually um, just do this a bit differently. Um, Well, not completely differently, but a little bit differently this evening. Why don't we just close our eyes? And for a moment, before we actually pray for each other, for those of you that are visitors or are new here, we like to end our time together a bit messily. And, you know, we often do a bit more worship. We allow God to come and minister his love to us and what he wants to do in our lives through the power of the Spirit. We, you know, we have coffee. But why don't we just close our eyes? And before we even pray just want to give us a couple of moments and maybe I want to encourage you just to ask the Lord if there's anything that he wants to say to you as a sign of his love for someone else here this evening. He might give you a, a, a word of knowledge, he might give you an impression, he might give you a picture, he might give you a piece of information about something he wants to do in somebody's life here. But let's just be quiet for a couple of moments. and invite him to speak. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're a God who speaks to your children. 
It's part of the blessing and the inheritance of being your child. And I just want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just release words of knowledge, prophetic words, anything that you want to say to us specifically as individuals this evening, not just as a group, but anything here for any individual here as a way of demonstrating your love. Okay, if you feel like you might have something, you're not sure, you don't have to be sure. I just want to encourage you where you are just to speak it out so that we can all hear. And if your heart's beating, that definitely means you should speak it out. Great. Thank you. Okay, thank you. My name Darcy, and the Father knows your heart. The name Darcy means anything to you. We'll 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 come to praying in a moment. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. God is well pleased with you. Anybody else feel like you have a word or a picture for somebody here? Thank you. I don't know if you heard that, but the the sense that God is an uncle to some of us. Maybe he's some other things as well. And actually this evening, God wants to reveal himself as father. Such a good word. Great. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Anyone else? Uh, I just had a picture of a, a brother and sister uh, playing together, really enjoying each other's company. Felt like a, a bit of a uh, that, that image for someone would be uh, restoring hope in what God wants to do in their family. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do you hear that? Just a sense that for some of us, we're afraid um, of, of, of the fact that God's love might actually cause pain. Kind of classic scenario, I should think, you know, if I come to God and I really draw near to him, he'll send me to the place that I don't want to go. And that actually God wants to reveal the true nature of his love, that actually it is good and it is safe. I had a similar picture that, or a similar word. I've, I feel like God's saying to one or two in here, it's safe to come home. It's safe to come home. Anyone else? Yeah, I just got a sense that um, <clears throat> someone feels ashamed to, be, <clears throat> to say that they're a child of God. <clears throat> and actually God wants them to know that you only be ashamed of being a child of God because he's not ashamed that you're his child. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So I want to say, let's just, you know, let's get the band back up here. If any of those words specifically, um, you know, apply to you, if, if, if they just resonate somewhere within you, I don't know, are we going to pray? <laughs> I was, where are we going to pray? Down here? <laughs> Lovely mess. Just come, make your way forward somewhere and somebody will follow you and come and pray for you. For those of you that, that um, love praying and love blessing other people and seeing them blessed, if you can just begin to make your way down here. I also just have this sense that, um, you know, there are some of us here and we've never felt the love of the Father. We've never felt it. It's something you've just never experienced in a tangible way. If that's you, I want to invite you to come down to the front and uh, we're going to pray for you. And because God wants us to experience his love as well as to know it. Ephesians 3, it talks about the Holy Spirit giving us power to grasp how wide and how high and how long and how deep is that love that passes understanding. So just begin to make your way down to the front. If you're in here and you've had nightmares recently, if you've been having nightmares, I believe that the Lord wants to, to minister into that this evening. And also, if you, um, Mireille talked about being um, the whole thing of, of, of pregnancy, you know, when she was in her mother's womb. And I just had a sense that there may be somebody in here and you were an unwanted baby or you feel like you were an unwanted baby. Whether it's true or not, you feel like you're an unwanted child. And God wants to break into that 
this evening and show you how much he wanted you and how much he loves you and that you are chosen. So if that's you or you want prayer for anything else, if you're here and you want prayer for healing, uh, again, I want to encourage you to get prayer from somebody next to you or you know, come and find a space and somebody will come and pray for you. Or if you're looking for direction in your life and you're waiting for God to speak to you, again, this is the place, friends, to press into the presence of God. He's here. He loves to move amongst his people. He loves to use others to bless us. We do that when we get somebody to pray for us. So don't leave this evening until you've, you know, you've, you've pressed into him for all that you're here for this evening.